Welcome to the Juno Report, brought to you by Guide Dog Users Incorporated, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. The Juno Report is a monthly audio magazine featuring all things guide dogs, training programs, and items of general interest to guide dog teams. We welcome your feedback, ideas, and suggestions. Get in touch with the Juno Report by emailing junoreport at guidedogusersinc.org. Again, that email address is Juno, J-U-N-O, report at guidedogusersinc.org. I love my dog, baby, I love my dog. na 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 I said I love my dog, baby, I love my dog. And now, let's get on with today's program of the Juno Report. Well, hello, everyone. This is Deb Cook-Lewis, and I'm here with you on the eve of Convention Eve for the American Council of the Blind. That's right, within um, uh, just a few hours, about 36 hours of my recording, we're going to be launching our first ever virtual convention. Oh, I'm so tired. I feel like I've already flown to some other city and all that stuff you do to get ready for a convention. I think I forgot my toothbrush and I don't remember if I bought, if I uh, brought Praline's toys. So we, we are having our usual <laughs> convention challenges, right? Now, when you listen to this podcast, if you listen to it over ACB Radio Mainstream when it first comes out, uh, you will not have been to convention yet, or you may not have been to much of it yet. So uh, if you, though, come later and hear it in the podcast feed, of course, convention will be over and uh, we'll be looking back on it. So it just kind of depends on your perspective, I guess. But I wanted to mention a few things for those of you who um, haven't been to a convention before and will be experiencing the convention. Uh, GDUI, Guide Duck Users Incorporated, which sponsors the Juno Report, um, we'll be having sessions at the convention on Monday and Tuesday, July 6th and 7th. And those sessions will be live at uh, beginning at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And then there's another session both days at 3 o'clock Eastern Time. And you can take a look in the program and get all the details of those. I would probably tell you them correctly because I've had a lot to do with the making of the program guide, not the program itself, but the guide to it. Um, but I, uh, just in case I messed that up, but, but um, you, so you can come, you know, to, you'll hear some of it on ACB radio. And if you are registered for the convention, you can join the, the Zoom discussion and it will be great. But if you miss it, that's my next thing. It's like, well, yeah, I missed all that. Just do something else, will you? So if you do miss the live um, iteration of the GDUI convention as part of the ACB convention. It will be available in podcast form as well. So definitely take advantage of those opportunities. 
This month we have a very special encore presentation. Before I uh, ran the uh, Juno report, one of the people who um, put this program together for us was uh, Dan Kaiser, and I've mentioned him before. He he definitely is one of our founding fathers of the Juno Report. And he sent to me the other day two interviews that he recorded while he was still in charge. And I presume he used them at the time. They're both so great. But we're going to use one of those this month. And then I don't know if we're going to use the other one next month or if we're going to use it soon. I haven't decided, but we're not using it this month because the two of them together are just a tiny bit too long. So we can't do that. But we are going to play one of them. These are from June of 2016. So if you think back and do the math, that is four years ago. And a very major event happened four years ago, which is the retirement of Michelle Pouliot, who worked for over 40 years at Guide Dogs for the Blind and held a number of different positions and did a lot of things. And, you know, it's really neat to honor our sort of senior guide dog school representatives if when we can. So um, I thought that was great. The other one is also going to be a, a person who is absolutely um, renowned in the field, and, and that nod will go to uh, Lucas Frank from the Seeing Eye, and we all certainly agree about that. But that's not this month. This month we're going to uh, have a listen to Dan's interview with Michelle Pouliot just prior to her retirement in June of 2016. And I think you'll really enjoy this if you didn't hear it then. And even if you did, I think you'll enjoy it because she just has a lot of great memories and she's done so many interesting things. So let's give a listen to uh, Dan Kaiser with Michelle Pouliot. Hi, Dan. Hey, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I'm sorry about your retirement, but you got to retire sometime, I guess. Yeah, it's uh, it's mixed emotions. After 42 years, I'm ready to have just some time for family. Uh, but at the same time, it's kind of hard to go. <laughs> Let me start out by asking you, you've been a guide dog instructor for 42 years. I think uh, you've been around longer than I. I got my first dog in 77. And you, I believe, were one of the first women as a, as a guide dog instructor. How hard was that for you to break into the field as a woman? Because back then you had big males that were Air Force dog trainers and, you know, military dog trainers and that sort of thing. And uh, how hard was it for you to get into the profession? Well, you know, the interesting thing about that is that so many people, especially at Guide Dogs for the Blind, think that I was like the first woman instructor. Uh, and even those that, that knew that six months prior to me, there was another female hired. Uh, what everyone forgets is that one of the very first instructors at GDB was a woman, Lois Maryhew, <laughs> way back. But she then was the last female until 1973. <laughs> okay. So, that was a long time that it turned into a man's job. And I, I think that so many successful years of 
hiring people directly from the military who had worked with military dog training uh, was an asset, and that worked out well. Um, I have to say that when I arrived, uh, it was a little um, intimidating in that uh, the, it wasn't just that the staff was all male. It was uh, a bit of an attitude adjustment for them because they pretty much had been under the belief system that a woman couldn't do this work. In fact, I have a framed letter from another guide dog school that I applied to about the same time, and that letter says that women are not emotionally or physically able to do this work. <laughs> wow. Wow. I know. So now you know why I have it framed. It's, I find it quite, quite interesting, especially when you look at the shift over the last several decades that it's, it's the majority of women are now in this job versus uh, men. So it's kind of an interesting shift. But, uh, of course, it was uh, a little difficult, and I certainly had to prove myself to my peers. So I had to prove to them that I could do this job. I didn't come in with a clean slate. I was I was behind the ball when I first came in just because I was a woman. But I have to say there were a few individuals that were extremely supportive from day one, one of those being Peter O'Reilly. Uh, Peter was just, uh, I think, at his two, two-and-a-half-year mark with guide dogs, getting ready for his state test. And he was extremely gracious, and when I would be training dogs, he would come up and ask me, how did you just do that so quickly? And so, so there were very supportive uh, instructors, uh, but overall, some of the more experienced, long-time people that were there, yeah, it was a little interesting for the first uh, year or so. You were a role model to a lot of female guide dog instructors. In fact, you know what a lot of them call you, don't you? No. The goddess of guide dog instructors. And Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, how do you like that? And you know, too bad you can't frame that. But uh yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and uh, but but I have to ask you and one of your one of your original students and Sylvia wanted me to ask you this question and that is who was your mentor? Oh, really good question. I would I would probably have to say that in my first couple of years, Bruce Benzler was my mentor. Uh -huh. He was the training supervisor at that time. And although I didn't get to work with him a lot, uh, of course, he tested everything. He was the one that did all the testing of the dog. So that was always a very nervous moment when Bruce was going to test you under blindfold. But I have to say, when I had moments with him to get advice, he always gave me really good advice about what to do with the problem I was having with the dog. So I have to say that he was probably one of the individuals that I really looked up to as far as if I had a, a question about guide dog training or working with clients, that would be the person to go to. The other person was Ray Underwood, oh, yeah. who was probably, yeah, probably one of the most talented dog trainers um, on the staff. Uh, at that time, and Ray was just kind of a natural with dogs and really supportive. Uh, for a traditional trainer who was male, uh, he was extremely supportive of the dog and, and really did not like to get heavy-handed with them at all. So I really learned a lot from watching him, too. And, of course, the 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 students were going through a big change because back when you started, you had 
male dominated a uh, male dominated workforce which required larger dogs like the shepherds and the bigger labs and uh then as as as, as i guess you went along uh the trend started you saw more women in the workplace and then you saw smaller dogs and uh were you part of of making sure that that happened or how did that was that a long gradual change or was that a sudden change or how did that work well it actually wasn't related to women and men versus that the client uh capabilities were changing because as the word got out about guide dogs and how they can help your mobility instead of the very athletic outgoing people who maybe were in a war or just really bold travelers in general saying, I want to go get a guide dog. All of a sudden we started having older uh, applicants and along with being older, less physically capable, uh, including in men. So I think if you looked at the medium age of people applying for guide dogs in the 70s, you're looking around in their 30s. And all of a sudden in the 80s and the 90s, we're looking at people in their 40s and 50s, um, which is a big difference when it comes to the kind of dog you can manage. I don't ever recall being involved in any we-need-to-breed-smaller dogs, but I do remember asking for more sensitive, easier-to-manage dogs. That was uh, at the end of the uh, 70s, early 80s, we were already realizing that it was harder now to match these tougher dogs with the average client coming in the door. And, of course, you uh, you ended up uh, becoming the research and development person at Guide Dogs for the Blind. And I was involved in one of your studies on harnesses. And it, it's been fascinating what you folks have come up with in terms of harnesses and the, the easy move harness and the sort of overall evolution of harnesses. And uh, we had a uh, report a couple months ago on this show with uh, Lucas Frank talking about the history of the harness. And do you think, do you see the Swiss harness as the end all harness or do you see any more developments in that area? Well, although the Swiss harness is an exceptionally wonderful harness, well balanced, lightweight, it's still, it's still not the end all. We're always looking for ways to improve it and we're still using a few of those free movement harnesses occasionally on individual dogs or for clients who prefer it. Uh, I think that when you're looking at the locomotion movement of a dog and a guide dog where they're putting pressure points on their body when they work, I think you're always having to give and take on what's more important. So, for instance, if, if you look at that free movement harness, which comes from between the front legs and extends itself like a tracking harness uh, across the top of the shoulders and, and frees up the shoulder movement, that's a real plus. One of the negatives is that when you have a strap across the chest, which is the common design for, for harnesses, you actually can feel a little more in the dog's movement. So uh, it, it's hard. It's like if you make a list of everything you'd want in a harness, it's impossible to put it together. You end up having to give something for 
another thing that you want. You have to decide which is more important. And we're very, very happy with the Swiss harness. Uh, not only is it an exceptional design and the dogs enjoy it more, um, it's also beautiful on top of it. So it's, it's aesthetically very pleasing and very professional looking. But the, it isn't the end all. I mean, we're always looking like in my head, I would love to see a really easy to use retractable handle that was also very lightweight. The problem is as soon as you start getting into the retractable handle, you're adding some weight to the harness. So that means that when you don't retract it and it sits on the dog's back, it's going to have more weight than our current Swiss, which is really light. Well, I want built-in so, I want built-in Wi-Fi, but I don't ask for much. Anyway. Yeah, I, I think that's a great <laughs> idea too. In fact, who knows, you know, the, the harnesses of the future are probably going to have a cell phone pouch on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that that's right. Certainly, uh, I I can see where if you had too many things to give you do, uh, more dog information, more feeling from the dog, um, I could see where that would all just kind of muddle together. I mean, I know that if you were to add a martingale to the Swiss harness, for example, which I've been a big proponent of the martingale. Uh, with not a whole lot of stuff going on with that harness because the Martindale, Martingale down the front gives you that front shoulder turning, uh, feeling. You could, you could feel that stuff better. But, um, I, I know, I see your point. If you put too much stuff on it, you're just not gonna, you're gonna be sensory overloaded almost. Yeah. And, and then you also come into the difficulty of how individual each dog's physique is. And how well can a certain sizing number, let's say you have five sizes of harness, you're going to have some dogs that no matter what size you pick, just the shape of their shoulders, how close their front legs are together, how far apart their front legs are, they are not going to have the exact fit you'd like. So unless you went to having a custom-made harness for every dog, which would be ridiculously expensive, it's really hard to get the perfect fit. So, so all, all of that you have to take into consideration. Like we, we have a martingale on the Swiss that we use for our wheelchair guide users because it helps keep that long handle from flopping the harness sideways. It stabilizes a little more. But you're right. The more things you add, it can be good, but then pretty soon you got so much stuff going on, you've added a lot of weight to the harness too. Speaking about wheelchair, uh, when I was on the board at GDB, I was on the national board and I broke down and started crying when I saw that film. It was the most awesome film that I have ever seen. Uh, and it, it was just unbelievable. And talk to me a little bit about, I mean, you must have felt really, that must have been a pinnacle in your training career to, to see those dogs in action, pulling a wheelchair and the way they were able to, uh, side, get it kind of sideways up the curve and that kind of thing. It was, uh, very motivational to not only uh, attempt it, but then succeed at it. So Southeastern guide dogs had really been the pioneers in doing wheelchair work back in the 1990s. And, uh, most of the other schools, us included, were like frowning on that, like, you know, I don't know, you know, that's like, how can you ask the dog to do that? Um, to, uh, to clarify, though, the dog is not pulling the wheelchair. So it's a power wheelchair, and the person is following the dog through the joystick. So some people get that impression when they watch 
a wheelchair guide dog team is it looks like the dog's pulling the chair, but it's just pulling as your guide would pull you lightly to give you feel for where to go. And that's why we only use power chairs so the dog doesn't have to do that kind of physical work to, to pull the chair. But that said, uh, very motivational and inspirational. Um, and I have to say uh, that when we first started getting into positive reinforcement training, it was about the same time that we decided to try training wheelchair guides for two of our long-term clients who were now in wheelchairs. We couldn't have done it without the positive reinforcement training. I really do believe it would have been way too stressful on those dogs to learn these difficult skills without having positive reinforcement as the method to teach them. So I have to give kudos to the timing of it. If we had tried this in the 1990s, I don't know if we would have been successful. Uh, but we were successful, and it was. It, I mean, it, when you've trained dogs as long as I had at that time, I already had uh, 30 years in the training program and to have something challenge you and then see something that you would never have thought would could be so successful and to give people their mobility again who have been used to traveling with a guide dog it was very emotional for me and i think the the real surprising thing that came out of that was that that sort of personality evaluation of the dogs that you could have a a dog that was very outgoing a dog that wasn't outgoing but it had nothing to do with really the dog's personality but everything to do with you know the motivation of the dog and the positive reinforcement that you is is that correct yes that is because when we first started uh we we were training two wheelchair guide dogs for two of our long-term clients who were then now in wheelchairs and we thought we were going to have to have this textbook type of dog uh and actually, both those dogs were extremely different. Uh, the bottom line was they had to be dogs that were motivated, wanted to work, wanted to learn. Uh, one of them was just this easygoing, big teddy bear, uh, low energy. The other one was high energy, was always wanting a challenge, wanted to play all the time. I mean, they were very different dogs, and yet they both were extremely successful and uh, perfect matches for their clients. Let me ask you, and I, I, I talked to Lucas Frank, and he was talking about how the evolution of air conditioning had made a big change in mobility because blind folks couldn't, you know, smell the grocery store anymore. They couldn't smell the dry cleaners because everything was closed up, which was a good point. But we also talked about the stresses of modern travel versus yesterday. What What do you think are some of the big issues about travel today as compared to the past? I think it's it's more involved for both the dog and the handler because it's just simply busier and people are so focused on getting somewhere fast, whether they're driving a car or they're walking on the sidewalk, um, and they're so busy with technology that they're not paying attention to where they're going. So um, there was a cartoon that someone showed me last month, which is just hilarious. It's uh, It was a cartoon showing a guide dog program for people who want to use their cell phones, meaning they weren't blind. It was, <laughs> yeah. you, you, and the person in the cartoon was saying, see, we'll never go out of business. 
Wow. That is so people hilarious. People were getting guide dogs so that they could read their phone while they were walking. Uh, and unfortunately, it's although it's funny, it's really true. It's as a sighted pedestrian now, I find it much more difficult to walk in the environment uh, because people don't look where they're going uh, and everyone's more in a rush. So to me, it makes this more stressful for the guide dog and the guide dog handler to effectively move through that kind of environment. Um, and and a, I think that's a really good point that Lucas made about the, um, or what his client told him about the air conditioning, because it's true. It's store doors used to always be open. So you had a lot more information as you went down the sidewalk, even if you weren't looking for that store, it gave you more information. And uh, now the information is less uh, clear because you don't have that much information. So, to me, that would be the biggest change is busyness, traffic, people on bicycles, kids on skateboards on the sidewalks. Um, it's people breakdancing on the sidewalk, uh, homeless people on the sidewalk. I think that uh, the homeless situation has caused real challenges for guide dog users because often those people will have a pet dog with them and sometimes not a very friendly dog. So um, I think in general, just the environment a guide dog team has to work in is much more difficult today than it was in the 70s. And it, it feels like more people are walking less distances. Their, their work routes have to do with getting to a bus, getting to a train, getting to a cab, um, and then being transported to their destination and then working from that transport to their destination. So in the 70s, I felt like we had so many common routes that were of distance. People were walking several miles to get to a destination. And it, I think the modern guide dog user is using their dog all day long, but maybe not really logging that many actual miles with the dog. So that can be a challenge if you have a high-energy dog. That can actually pose a challenge because the dog's not getting that much work. But on top of that, I just think that busyness is a higher stress on both guide dog and handler. My uh, my dog is certainly uh, used to riding Uber a lot. So he's, you know, he gets to see all kinds of different cars and go in all kinds of different cars. And uh, I guess commonly I just have to have the driver. Can you uh, pull both seats up forward as far as you can? <laughs> so, right, to make a little bit of room. And that's another good point, Dan, is how small the floor space is in cars nowadays. And, 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 and you know, the issue about the... Uh, airbags and how to position a dog i just will not sit in the front seat because of that because my dog even if he lies on the floor i think he's going to be too tall for that airbag yeah i i agree it's um there's so many things that are different now with technology and um and at the same time this whole thing about space in general in the world uh compact cars and it amazes me how small the floor space is when you when I think back to the 70s and the 80s and getting in a taxi, it was like you had all this room for the dog to lay down. And now it's like you hardly have room for your own feet. And then, of course, the same with the airlines. I, I never sit up by the bulkhead on Southwest because it's there's more room in the regular seats than by the bulkhead on Southwest. Yeah, there, it, and that's the other thing. There's such inconsistencies unless you know an airline well or the actual uh, planes. 
uh, the type of plane you're going to be on, it's really difficult to know which seat's going to be the best. You know, I fly a lot, and I always, of course, am looking and going, if I had a dog with me, oh, my God. Um, and there are some planes that the uh, window seat has the most room under the seat in front. And there's others that there's hardly any, and it's the aisle seat that has the most space. So the, the configurations nowadays are so inconsistent as far as knowing which would be the best to pick. And I agree with you, bulkheads used to be a really roomy area, and they're not anymore unless you just happen to get one of those that doesn't have the wall that goes all the way to the floor. Then the dog's got some room to kind of move away as it, after it goes down a little bit. What is your feeling um, on loading extra equipment onto your dog to keep it well-trained? All this extra stuff, and my gut feeling is, well, if you can't train the dog um, to, to basically deal with the environment, uh, I don't think that dog is, is well-trained. When you're talking about extra equipment, are you meeting like specialized collars? Yeah, specialized collars. And I'm not talking about the ethical humanity behind that because right. I don't think it's right. that, I don't think it's that bad, but. Well, y you can be right on one hand. Uh, our perception of this is that all the dogs should be able to be easily worked on a martingale collar, which is a fabric collar. It's called a half check commonly. So it's not a choke chain. So all of the dogs should be able to be effectively handled, managed, and worked on that. The problem sometimes, though, does come into the individual client and their physical strength and ability. And things like having an extra tool to allow them to maybe say, I'm about to go to a party. There's going to be food all over the place. There's going to be a buffet. And I think I'm going to go ahead and put my gentle leader on so I have an easier time managing my dog in that environment. That's kind of our opinion. Our only extra tool really we use is the gentle leader or, or a head collar of some kind, not as the dog has to wear it, but it's an added tool to help somebody manage the dog easier. We have done away with using prong collars at all. And interestingly enough, when we chose that, it was way before the whole ethical uh, issue oh, came yeah. in. Yeah. It, in. In Europe, in Europe, the ethics have been very, very uh, emotional on that subject for a long time, and even more so in the last five years. When we decided it, it was more from the thought process you were having was, well, what is going on if we have to put a prong collar on a dog? Maybe that's a bad match. For that person. Now, that said, there have been many teams that, you know, extra equipment has made them successful and have made uh, less physical stress on the handler to manage the dog. But I would agree with you that uh, if a dog is trained on basic equipment and they show themselves to be able to be managed well on that, the, the only reason for other equipment would be if the individual has maybe strength problems uh, or technique problems. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm certainly open to saving a team uh, if, if it's going to help them be successful. But uh, we wouldn't be having a dog issued to a client if it needed, for instance, that head collar to be successful. There's something wrong there. We, we should it. be able yeah. to 
yeah, we should be able to assign a dog that can work effectively on a, a standard collar. So the equipment yeah. is basically used to compensate for the human's ability to handle the dog. Maybe he's too he or she's too weak in in their arms or something, and that would that would compensate. I get right, and and I mean, you still are hoping that your matching process takes that into consideration. But uh, I mean, the we we found the head collars to be our tool of choice for added uh, assistance for the handler if necessary. Uh, but there, yeah, I mean, you know, a little red flag goes up when you say to yourself, "I feel like I have to have all this stuff on my dog." Uh, but again, then it comes down to the individual as to maybe that dog is real special. They like everything about it, and they say. To keep this dog, I'll go ahead and continue to use that. But it is a problem, and I kind of agree with your philosophy on it, is I would like to think that the dog has proven itself to be able to work without the need of that extra equipment. And you are one of the gurus on clicker training, and you're in a lot of literature, um, and uh, you're, you and Lucas are two of the top uh clicker training experts in the country as far as guide dogs. And um, what do you say about, I, I take it you, you and Seeing Eye do not, both schools don't seem to overuse clicker training. You use it for targeting and that kind of thing. Um, but, I mean, what do you say to this issue um, that are you desensitizing the dog from your verbal commands with clicker training where the dog becomes uh more interested in the clicker than in the uh in the um positive uh voice output of the human well if you had asked me that question in 2001 i would have probably said wow yeah that could be a problem but what I've learned over the years as I've gotten better and better at applying this very, very powerful tool called clipper training is that it makes the dog more sensitive to what the handler says and more in tune to what they're asking. So here's the, here's the secret. There's a thing called training with a clicker, which is not effective clicker training, meaning you're just using the sound device, but you don't know how to use it well. So you're not really getting the power available. Which in was probably tool. my, which probably happened to me. I'm sure that that's what happened to me. Well, and here's the other thing is when we first started using Clicker, which was around 2005, 2006, we rolled it out to clients a little bit in 2007. We were still babies at it and we weren't really that aware of how to be most effective with it. So, I, I won't say that we saw a decline in the dogs, uh, you know, like listening to voice and verbal and touch. But what we did notice is that we had forgotten how important those still were. And now that we've addressed the fact that all during training, when the, when the clicker is being used heavily in the first few weeks of training, we also make sure that we are adding verbal touch to that whole process so that along the development of the dog's skills, that's a part of that reward process. Now, interestingly enough, you've probably heard of classical conditioning, Pavlov's dog. Right. So understand that all of the food rewards that we're giving these dogs in early training 
every single time we deliver a reward, like say, say we marked a behavior with the clicker, dog did something wonderful, we marked it. And as we're giving this food reward, we're saying, what a good boy. We are actually classically conditioning that those words have more meaning than ever. So we are actually seeing more response from dogs when they're being praised because they've been classically conditioned that it isn't just a human going blah, 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 blah. It actually had an association with something that they are genetically born liking, which is food. And then as they're hearing praise and not getting food, you're getting the same reaction. Just like when Pavlov's dogs didn't get fed after the bell, they still salivated. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you you condition the animal to really enjoy those words. That's a pleasant association. So when we finally had our light bulb moment around 2008-2009, and we said, "Wow, we are not taking advantage of all of these food rewards we're giving. We can also be classically conditioning." praise and touch. At the same time, we're teaching all these skills with good clicker training. So I would have to say for your original question, it's the opposite. We, we, are, we are creating dogs that are so much more in tune to want to hear what the handler is going to tell them because they have a history of the cues the handler gives mean great things. It doesn't mean do it or else. Right. It means do it because I want to do it. And if you think back to somebody in your schooling when you were young, you think of a teacher that you wanted to please. You really liked them. They made you feel good. You wanted to please. Every, you, you hung on their every word. And then think about the teacher who was very rough and punishing, and you didn't want – you were always trying to find a way out. So what we're doing is we're really tapping into not only the power in really effective clicker training to teach guide work skills really quickly and have this dog enthused about it, but we're also classically conditioning them to love their work. So from the beginning, everything about it is positive for them. When I think back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, when we were teaching young dogs just how to lead and harness, how to do their basic turns, it was not a very pleasurable experience. So they were being told, you will do this. And they weren't all that happy about it. And then we're trying, we're trying to jolly them up and cheerlead them and tell them how great they're doing. And I'm not saying it didn't work. Of course it worked. It worked fine. And it continues to work for schools that are not using food. But what we've discovered is by starting at the beginning with effective use of food, and I, I underline the word effective, we're actually creating an animal that wants to interact with its handler. It's not going, oh, she's telling me to do this again when I'd rather go see the squirrel. They actually want to interact with you. So even if they do get distracted, which, of course, they do because they're still dogs, they have a history of being rewarded of something of value for, for choosing to not be distracted. So they are more naturally inclined to be easy to get undistracted and get back to work much easier than before, whereas the old the old uh, instruction I can hear myself in the 70s saying, jerk him harder, jerk him harder. I mean, I, I, we don't have to say that. That doesn't happen anymore because now we have an animal that even if they do need an occasional no or heal or sit, 
they're all of a sudden automatically, their, their conditioning brings them back to the handler and wanting to relate to them. I've gotten big dogs with big necks and jerking doesn't help with those kind of dogs. <laughs> no, not at all. If you lay down on a slick floor, they could drag you across the floor, couldn't they? Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it, it's instead of trying to turn it into a physical relationship, we've turned it into a mental and a bonding relationship. And I can't tell you the difference. I mean, it's overwhelming to me to watch these dogs work their attitudes. Dogs that have only had a month of training, you're watching them on the street going, they look finished. They look like they're loving their work, whereas the dogs before looked quite serious, quote-unquote, meaning I have a job to do, and if I don't do it, I'll get in trouble. Yeah. So when you create anything, any animal, any species, a human, when you create the desire to do the work, you have an animal that's much easier to deal with overall. So even when they do have those really difficult situations, kid comes up and sticks an ice cream cone in their face, you at least have an animal with a background who has wanted to please and has wanted to avoid distractions. They haven't avoided them because they're under threat which is what, you know, are a punishing traditional training method, like I used for years, that's what it is, isn't it? It's a threat. So the word hop up was more of saying, don't you dare do that, is kind of what it was like. Whereas now it's an opportunity for the dog to say, oh, if I do this choice, I could get rewarded. There's a possibility that I'll get rewarded. And they have enough of a history of that, that the client doesn't have to feed that often, but... Just because there's the potential, the dog's had such a history of it that the dog's very excited about doing the right thing. So we see dogs so much more enthused about their work than we ever have before. And some of us old-time trainers like myself, I watch some of these young GDMIs testing under blindfold, and I'm like, I wish I had had the opportunity to use this technique training the 350 guide dogs I personally train. Because seeing these dogs want to do the work instead of being kind of under threat to do the work, it's huge. It's a huge difference. And and I still go back to your question, but if you'd asked me that in 2001, 2002, I probably would have answered it differently. I probably would have said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You and I have both seen schools that overuse food rewards. And I, I think it's really sad because I don't know what that does to the dog, but I know that two or three of the schools do not overuse. Probably most of the schools don't overuse food reward. But food reward is really meant to do what from a handler's point of view? From the handler's point of view in our program, their ongoing use of food reward, we want it to be enough that the dog believes the potential is there so it continues to really give them a lot of power the handler, a lot of power. But our dogs, we don't want somebody feeding them at every corner. It's not necessary. Uh, when you say overuse, that still can be misinterpreted because it, it, it implies there's a given amount that is like meaning you're either underusing, overusing, or just perfect. And if you're using food effectively is the way to really say it. If you're using food to bribe your dog, so, like, your dog's distracted, so you get food out, and you show them you have food, and all of a sudden they're not distracted. 
That's not effective food use because what you've done is you have made a requirement that the way I have to get his attention is to show him I'm going to give him food. That's a bribe. That's a lure. So what we want is we want the dog to be in the thought process of if I respond to this cue, let's say it's heel, sit, forward, pop up, whatever it is, if I respond to that, there's great potential that I could get food reward, but it's not an expectation. So what you don't ever want to create is an expectation in the dog that I'm supposed to get food now because then it can become a requirement for the dog. Our dogs don't need food to work. Will they work better if the client continues to give some variable food reward during routes? Yes, of course they will. But it doesn't mean they won't work if they don't get it. They still love their praise. They enjoy working for the person. But because it's a powerful tool, the school's job is to teach the individual client how to use it effectively and not create problems via expectations in the dog. So if a dog is distracted, and they're just going to keep getting distracted until they see food come out, that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of what I was going at because, I mean, I think from the handler's point of view, I mean, I would only use it for, you know, let's say to find a light pole that the dog wasn't able to find, uh, maybe to be on a traffic island and to go 30 degrees to the right, but the dog wasn't doing it. And once it did it right, then I would give him a food reward as a, as a training tool mainly. Yeah, and, and our clients using the clicker for a client, our clients are only using it to teach their dog a new target. So they're not using the clicker. The dogs are, once a skill is trained, the clicker is just a, a communication tool. It's right. a way to tell the animal the moment they're doing something right. And when you have a clicker-wise dog and you go to a brand-new pedestrian walk button, you find it with your cane, you put your hand on it, and you do a couple nose-targeting repetitions, that dog has it. You can go back 40 yards and they'll find it. So when you have a dog that knows how to learn and is motivated to learn, it happens very, very quickly versus needing a whole bunch of repetition. So if you think of going to a convention and you check into your room and it's on the fifth floor and it's down a long hall with all the doors that look just alike and you want to introduce your dog to your room door so that for the rest of the three days of the convention, you can get off the elevator and find the door really quickly, a clicker-wise dog, you can do that in about three minutes and they'll nail it every time. So... Our clients are learning, wow, there's a real power tool here, but they have to know how to use it correctly. So it's just like if you go back to traditional training, you still had skills you had to learn. You had to learn how to grab the leash at the right length, jerk it correctly, release it correctly, time your praise. These are just different skills that are less physical. They're less violent. So these skills are more of a mental game. So you can almost look at it as a kind of technology. Right. Right? It's like a, a modern technological way of training a dog versus a rock'em sock'em method. And I have the right to say those words because I did it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm not someone from the outside being judgmental. I was actually in the trenches training dogs traditionally for many, many years. So 
I've, I've got the ability to make an open-minded comparison. And I can tell you right now, I would never go back. Nobody could twist my arm. And, and I'm not saying it wasn't successful. All the dogs I personally trained, 350, were very successful guide dog teams. People love their dogs, and probably some people listening are saying, oh, yeah, I had a dog from Michelle, and I loved her. Great. But I'm telling you now, if I had had this technology and this skill in my pocket, that dog would have been so much better. It would have been a better animal to work with. It would have been much more of a partnership, a a conversation versus trying to manage the dog. So um, before we close, um, where do you think uh, guide dog training is going to go? I mean, we have we have technology, we have GPS, uh, we have so many new things. Uh, I, I know when I get turned around, sometimes I pull out my GPS and uh, it gets me set on the right track again. And so no more getting lost for me. But where do you think training is going to go in the future? It's a really interesting uh, thought to try to figure out what the future in guide dog work is. I, I don't think very soon it would ever go away. So even with technology being wonderful for the handler as a mobility aid, I think you still are going to have a large population that love the interaction and the partnership of traveling with a guide dog. One, you're not traveling alone. You're traveling with a friend. Um, And obviously there's the social aspect too, both for the public but for yourself personally. I I, I just hope that guide dog users, as they use technology to help them, which, you know, yes, go for it, great. They just don't let it interfere with their relationship with their guide dog. So just like the cartoon I talked about earlier about the sighted public walking along the streets not looking where they're going, <laughs> I also would hope that guide dog users aren't walking along the street listening to their technology and not paying attention to their dog. So the bottom line is if you're in motion, it's like driving a car. If you're actually actively driving, you should be paying attention to your dog and relating to them, giving them feedback and uh, paying attention. And if you need to check your technology, why don't you stop for a second, check the technology out, and then proceed. So that's my only worry about technology is that we may have guide dog users more tempted to be distant from the dog while they're walking if they're using their technology at the same time uh, instead of really paying attention to what the dog is telling them because that's, of course, a safety issue not only for their well-being, but it's also um, well-being for the, the relationship between the dog and the person is the dog feels that there's a partnership and travel going on, not that they're just a, a piece of technology themselves walking down the sidewalk. But I, I can't envision very quickly uh, guide dog work going away. Uh, who knows what's going to happen in like four decades. I know right now my personal experience in the guide dog industry around the world is a lot of excitement in guide dog schools wanting to change to positive reinforcement. So there, there will be schools that will continue to not adopt positive reinforcement training, but in five years their clients are probably going to pressure them to to adopt it. We are already getting clients uh, that have gone to other schools 
that are not using positive reinforcement, and they specifically are coming to us because they want a dog trained this way. And it, it has to do more with just the world and our perception towards animals, Ringling Brothers, you know, retiring right. all the elephants. Everyone is sensitive to trying to be kinder and not just being violent with our animals, but being partners with them. And around the world, I just got back from three weeks in Europe helping uh, Swiss guide dog schools and German guide dog schools, and all of the staff at these schools are totally enthused and anxious to learn the skills. So the important piece to me is that they are able to learn the skills correctly so that it's a real asset to their clients instead of causing problems, you know, by using food in an ineffective way. Because it's such a powerful tool, it can also cause problems if you're not careful how you use it. So that's the important piece to me. And in my current world is seeing all the schools uh, changing so, so many across the world. I'm actually kind of surprised at how quickly this is spreading across the world. It's very exciting to me. You have a whole new generation of GDMIs, and this new generation of GDMIs, they don't want to be violent with the dogs. They want to have a conversation with them, and they want to have partnerships with them. So they're trying to get away from the old ways of a lot of correction. Not to say we still still correct dogs, but it, it's not our first go-to tool. And I've got to ask. I've got to ask you this question, Michelle. Um, what are you going to do when you retire? Because you are so involved with IGDF and and the whole research field, and and uh, uh, how are you going to keep yourself busy? Well, actually, I'm already booked for two years, so I'll be very busy consulting still and go. giving seminars. And it'll be in the private sector along with the guide dog industry and service dog industry. But I, I, I'm not really retiring from teaching. I'm just retiring from my day-to-day duties. Uh, I'll still be working with guide dogs for the blind uh, as a consultant coming in and helping them too. So I, I'm not going to go away. Uh, I'm still there, and I, I'm, I'm not ready to totally abandon the guide dog industry because it's such a part of me. And I'm so excited about what's happening now in the industry. So I, I kind of want to remain a part of it uh, for several years, but I'll just have weekdays off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I am really glad you're staying in the profession. It makes me feel a lot more confident that you're staying in the profession and you're not going to disappear. And yeah, I, I, I won't go away quite that easy. <laughs> well, Michelle, I want to thank you for a great interview and best of luck to you. Thank you, Dan. It was a pleasure talking to you. And it was a pleasure listening too. I just really enjoyed that. When Dan sent it over to uh, for my consideration to share with you, I played it right away. And also the other one that we'll be hearing uh, later in in a future episode. But I played this one right away, and it just uh, made me think about so many things. And although my dog is from GDB, I hope that even if your dog is not, I hope that you found this interesting because I think that when we uh, uh, listen to the people who really have the history of the movement and the future of it in mind. Um, it's just great. So I, I actually don't care what school they're from. They, they have so much great stuff to share with us. And that was just lots of fun. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up our Juno report for this time for, uh, uh, 
what month are we in? We're in July. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's going to wrap up our uh, Juno report for July. I want to thank you for coming along. Don't forget to either uh, come to the uh, convention or check out the archives of it when they become available. And we'll see you all next month on the Juno report. You've been listening to the Juno Report, brought to you by Guide Dog Users Incorporated, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. The Juno Report is a monthly audio magazine featuring all things guide dogs, training programs, and items of general interest to guide dog teams. We welcome your feedback, ideas, and suggestions. Get in touch with the Juno Report by emailing junoreport at guidedogusersinc.org. Again, that email address is Juno, J-U-N-O, report at guidedogusersinc.org. Until next month, this is Deb Cook-Lewis with the Juno Report saying, be good to your dog.